Do you have your notes? Everyone got your notes? Good. I'll just get mine. Just give me a minute to get organised here. Um, as uh, if you were here last week, you would have uh, um, benefited from Pastor Brendan's uh, um, study, introducing us to a new series on the the attributes of God. And it was a good place to start last week. Appreciate Pastor Brendan's teaching that uh, God is incomprehensible, but he is knowable. Um, he has revealed himself to us. He draws near to us and has revealed himself to us. And the God that, that is revealed in the scriptures is beyond our comprehension. And uh, that's one of the, one, going to be one of the great things about heaven um, is to... Uh, is to learn more and more about uh, our great God and Saviour. But uh, tonight we uh, progress, uh, lesson number two, and uh, we might, before I say too much about the particular attribute of God we're uh, talking about tonight, um, I'd like to uh, begin with a reading. Revelation chapter 21, please. Revelation 21 Um, of course, you know, we, we're going through Revelation in the evenings, uh, chapter 18 last Sunday, and uh, we've still got a little way to go. Um, in talking with Pastor Brendan about the preaching schedule, we're going to hit Christmas soon, and so we'll suspend the Revelation series, and uh, we will finish it in the new year, okay, the last couple of chapters, which are all good news, okay? <laughs> we've been going through all the bad stuff, um, but we'll begin the year with the, all the good news in the last... Uh, uh, a couple of chapters of Revelation. But for tonight, I'd like to uh, begin reading chapter 21, verse 1, down to verse 11. Then we'll pick a couple other portions as well. Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the, but the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, Come up hither, or come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and the light. And the light was like unto a, a stone most precious, even like jasper stone, 
clear as crystal. Let's come down to verse 22. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And all the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honour into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, as clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God, and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and the servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. All right. You know the saying, nothing lasts forever. Which is the undeniable lesson of history. All the great civilizations have passed and tumbled to the ground. Egypt fell to Assyria, or the Assyrians were overrun by the Babylonians, who fell to the Medes and Persians, who were defeated by the Greeks, who were conquered by the Roman Empire, which split and then crumbled. And all that is left of those ancient kingdoms is their ruins. And according to the same, and according to the book of Revelation, the same fate awaits the superpowers of today. Their empires too, along with their allies, will one day disappear at the return of Christ, if not before. It may be sooner. Nothing lasts forever. Except God. Except God. God will last forever. Because God is not a thing. God is a spirit. He is an infinite spirit. Infinite in time as well as space. He is the one that Abraham knew as the everlasting God. Genesis 21, He is the one that Moses called the eternal God who is our refuge. Deuteronomy 33:27. He's the one that Isaiah worshipped. The high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, Isaiah 57, 15. Some things have both a beginning and an end. An ant, a concert, lunch break, a holiday. And even as these things begin at a specific moment in time and continue, they also have an end. They come to an end. And whether the end is marked by death or an encore or a bell or by returning to work, 
The thing doesn't continue indefinitely. Other things have a beginning but no end. The angels are like that. Colossians 1.16 tells us they are created beings. And being created, they are created in time. But the angels are never run out of time because they were created to be immortal. And the same can be said of the souls of men. Every soul comes into being at conception. The moment that human life begins. But God has given us immortal souls that will never die. We have a beginning without an end. But God alone has neither beginning nor end. God is not in time at all. He is outside of time altogether. He is eternal in his nature. Time began only when God created the world. And even before creation, there was already God. The first words in the Bible confront us with the reality of God's awesome eternity. In the beginning, God Here's what one theologian said about those words, and it's there in your notes. There was a time, if time it could be called, when God, in the unity of his triune nature, dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to hymn his praises, no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God. And that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. God exists from eternity past. Genesis 1, 1 tells us that. And his existence extends into the future. At the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, says that he is the God who was and is and is to come. Revelation 10, 6 Tells us that he lives forever and ever. In the middle of the Bible, Psalm 102.27 says, But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Psalm 90 verse 2, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. The great Scottish preacher Thomas Boston put it this way, and his quote is in your notes there. He was from everlasting before time, and will remain unto everlasting when time shall be no more, without beginning of life or end of days. Not only is God eternal, but everything associated with God's being is eternal. First Chronicles 17.24 says that his name will be magnified forever. Psalm 93 verse 2 says his throne is an eternal throne. Genesis 17.7 says that his covenant is an everlasting covenant. Matthew 24.35 says that his words will never pass away. And uh, perhaps best of all, Jeremiah 31.3 says that he has loved us with an everlasting love. It's hard enough for us to understand time let alone eternity. Someone has said, if no one asks me the question what time is, I know well enough what it is. But if anyone asks me what it is, I don't know how to explain it. 
and we certainly do not know how to explain eternity, even when we're not being asked to explain it. We spend all of our time in time. We always want to know what the time is. We're ever conscious of the fact that time is slipping away. We live our whole existence moment by moment, but God is not at all like that. God doesn't have a succession of moments. The fact that God is eternal means that he transcends time. It's not as if God's existence is like our existence, only longer. Rather, God lives beyond time. And that's why it's important for us to get his perspective on time. His perspective is different from ours. Peter says, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. First point on your notes there, ask the question, to what can we compare the eternity of God? One of the ancient theologians said that human history is like a journey around the base of a mountain. And God, as it were, sits on top of the mountain and sees all of history happen all at once. It's not past or future for him. It's all present. Others have tried to illustrate it like this. Imagine an infinite sheet of paper stretching endlessly in every direction. Then imagine taking a pencil, drawing a line, one centimetre long. That line represents the entire history of the universe. The moment the pencil touches the paper is the beginning of time. The moment it's lifted off one centimetre, that's the end of time. And that little line is surrounded in every direction by the, the vast infinitude of the eternity of God. The universe that God made goes on indefinitely in that direction and infinitely in the opposite direction and forever and ever in every direction. Why is it that God made a universe without an end? It's so that it would help us to understand. It serves as an illustration of the kind of God that he is. The heavens, the universe declares the glory of God. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God, Moses said. From vanishing point to vanishing point would be another way to render that. The mind looks backward in time to the dim past vanishes from sight. Then it looks in the other direction to the future until thought and imagination just collapses. And God is at both points, unaffected by either. God's eternity is more than we can understand. But we can understand that eternity is of the very essence of God. Is our second point there. God's eternity is essential to all his other attributes. Imagine for a moment a God who possessed all the other divine attributes except eternity. He would be good, but not good for all time. He would have power, but eventually it would run out. His faithfulness would come to an end. His mercy would not endure forever. 
His love would eventually fail. Such a temporary God is no God at all. And this shows us how all the attributes of God hang together. These are not abstract principles, isolated one from another. They are his essential characteristics integrated into the personality of a triune God. In your notes, eternity is of the very essence of God. It is what makes all the other divine attributes infinite. Thirdly, there are not many stories in the Bible that help us understand about the eternity of God. How can they be? Because stories take place in time. Stories always have a beginning, a middle and an end. And the divine attribute of God's eternality means that God doesn't have a beginning, middle or end. However, there is one story in the Bible that does teach us something about the eternity of God. And that's the story of the boastful king of Babylon. Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Daniel, chapter 4. At this time, Daniel chapter 4, at this time, Babylon was the greatest city in the world. It was renowned for its wealth and learning, situated on the mighty Euphrates River. Its walls were 90 metres high, 20 metres wide, 100 kilometres in circumference. On each side of the city, there were 25 bronze gates. At the centre of the city, there was what we might call park lands in which the king's palace was, it was uh, 10 kilometres around. The king's name was Nebuchadnezzar. And one day he went for a stroll on the roof of his royal palace and from his vantage point he could see the glory of Babylon, the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And as he gazed over the city, he realised that he was lord of everything that he could see. Verse 30 says, the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty? What Nebuchadnezzar said was largely true. Babylon was a great city. It was his royal residence. It had been built by his power and glory in some measure. He himself possessed the royal attributes of power and honour and majesty. And though he was king, Nebuchadnezzar was not absolutely sovereign. His kingship was not eternal. And to illustrate that point, no sooner had this boastful king of Babylon boasted of his might than his kingdom was taken away. Very next verse, verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be in the, with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee 
until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. And this, God did this thing to bring Nebuchadnezzar to his senses. And later on, when the king looked back upon this experience, when he became like a wild beast, he realized that his was a case of temporary insanity. Verse 34 says, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes under heaven, and my understanding returned unto me. Okay, what's the lesson here? Human beings are out of their mind to glory in themselves. The truth is that our accomplishments are minor. Our stature is small. Our earthly existence is brief. And to see how minor are our accomplishments and how small our stature is and how short our existence is, we have to see things from a proper point of view. And it wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his eyes unto God and saw things from a proper point of view that he regained his sanity. As long as he was looking at himself and everything that he'd have achieved, he seemed enormous. There was no room for God at all in his thinking. But once he looked to God, he shrank back down to his proper size. In your notes there, once he came to his senses. Two things impressed Nebuchadnezzar about God. Number one, of course, God is sovereign. Verse 35. That's what he says. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his own will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar is thinking clearly. This is what God is like. God's sovereign over everything. He realized who is really in control of the universe. It's the one who is the king of kings. But there's something else that impressed Nebuchadnezzar too about God. And that was God's eternity. As a matter of fact, that's the first thing that he mentioned Verse 34, I blessed the Most High and I praised and honoured him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. This boastful king of Babylon learned how limited he was as a monarch. True, he was the most powerful man in the world at that time. But God can and did. God can take that power at any moment. Nebuchadnezzar realized that his kingdom would not last forever. He himself would die. His kingdom would pass in the hands of someone else. And eventually the Babylonian Empire is buried in the sand. But he contrasts that with the everlasting kingdom of God. Because he lives forever, he will reign forever. His dominion is eternal. His kingdom is everlasting. He alone is the king eternal. And so to him alone belong the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Fourthly, let's think about some practical implications. All the divine attributes of God have practical implications for daily life. 
And the eternity of God is no exception. First, because God is eternal, he is able to threaten the eternal damnation. He is able to threaten eternal damnation. If God did not live forever, then his judgment would not last forever. The curses of Scripture would be nothing more than idle threats. But God will live forever. Therefore, his threatenings of everlasting judgment must be taken with complete seriousness. The person who has more to say about hell in the scripture than anyone else is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he promised that when he comes in all of his glory, he will take up the throne of judgment. He will pronounce sentence upon those who neither loved him nor served him. Example of that, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment. To that place where according to Revelation 14 verse 11, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. The reality of eternal judgment depends upon the eternality of God. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, there, it's there in your notes, as long as God is eternal, he lives to be avenged upon the wicked. O eternity, eternity, who can fathom it? Mariners have their plummets to measure the depths of the sea. But what line or plummet shall we use to fathom the depth of eternity? And who, one might add, is able to endure even the thought of being separated from God's love for all eternity. Because the only sensible thing to do is to get saved. To come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Second, it is because of his eternity that God is able to guarantee eternal life. The same Jesus Christ who threatens the wicked with eternal punishment also promises eternal life to all who will believe the gospel. Matthew 26, 46 says the wicked go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as the only saviour from sin will receive eternal life. And over and over again, Jesus gives us a free invitation to receive eternal life. He told Nicodemus, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. One, uh, John chapter 3, 15 and 16. First John 5, 11 says, God hath given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son, because the Son is eternal, he can promise eternal life. Paul says, 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, Jesus Christ has abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So wrote the greatest Christian just before he went to meet his executioner. 
and God's eternity and man's mortality joined together to persuade us that faith in Christ is imperative. It's not optional. It's the only way to have eternal life. God is able to threaten eternal damnation. He's able to guarantee eternal life. And from those two points, a third practical point is also clear. Thirdly, we were made for eternity just as certainly as we have been made for time. But we often forget that. This life is not all that there is. The story of the Bible doesn't end with the world in which we're living in right now. There is an eternity on the other side of this life. A couple of subheadings. Number one, all of us have an innate longing for eternity. All of us have an innate longing for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that God the creator has made us. He's put the world in our hearts. The Hebrew word translated world is also used in verse 14 where it's translated forever. The most common way that Hebrew word is translated is, is everlasting. God has put eternity in people's hearts. All of us have longings within us that this temporary world can never fill. C.S. Lewis says, it's the quote is there in your notes, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We're made for it. And the longing for eternity doesn't mean that we're spiritually minded people. It means that we're human. It's the way we've been created. You may not necessarily be aware of it, conscious of it. But this longing for eternity, it's an essential part of what makes us human. And puts us as people who are on a moment-by-moment -moment personal quest. We're hardwired for eternity. We've been made to live forever. It's not, first of all, a matter of what we believe. It's a matter of what we are, who we are. We are immortal souls. Confined to this temporal world. That's why we struggle. Deep inside each of us is a cry for eternity. That's why the whole creation groans in Romans chapter 8. That's why the whole creation groans. It's every human struggle on this side of eternity. Secondly, the problem is that eternity doesn't mean anything to most people. The problem is that eternity doesn't mean anything for most people. It's not a factor. It's not something that influences the way that they live their lives day by day. As a culture, we believe in eternity the same, the same way that most people say they believe in God. That is, that is, it doesn't make any practical difference in their lives. 
Most people say they believe in God or in eternity, but you, you wouldn't know it from the way that they live. Most people live in a constant state of eternity amnesia. That's the way that Paul Tripp described it um, in his book Forever, subtitled Why You Can't Live Without It. And in some of his other writings, it's a very powerful expression. Most people have abandoned their conscience allegiance to the reality of eternity that structures the way that we should think about the here and now. The functional philosophy of the modern person is simply devoid of eternity. Eternity isn't a topic which is written about in newspapers and magazines. It isn't a serious topic of interest at universities or the halls of government. It isn't a topic of discussion in the popular media. You don't ever hear the evening news reader sign off saying something like this. I know things are bleak and chaotic, but let's remember that this is not all that there is. We're all heading for eternity and for believers. All that is broken will finally be forever fixed. That's the nine news for this Wednesday. I'm Peter Overton. I hope you all have a good evening from all of us here at Channel 9. Good night. You don't hear that. Fact of eternity is totally ignored. Hardly ever mentioned. Making it hard, very, very hard for us to imagine living forever. We find it hard to believe in anything that contradicts the here and now, all, this is all that you get sort of mentality that rules today. So we have this functional disregard for the once widely held belief in the afterlife. And without eternity at the centre of our thinking, the, the picture of life that people have is much like a jigsaw party with the, with a jigsaw puzzle with the main piece at the middle just missing. And you don't get an accurate view of the picture of life without this very, very important piece which is missing from the middle. That piece is called eternity. If this life is all that we have, then the name of the game is this. It's, it's, it's experience, it's possess it's accomplish everything you can right here and right now because this is all that there is you go around in life once therefore you've got to go with gusto to try to get everything you can eternity amnesia makes present pleasures more magnetic and seductive and present difficulties more painful and disappointing So we've got to obviously work to experience all the good things that we can and do everything that we can to avoid the bad things. Thirdly, many of us treat the here and now as a destination. Whatever our on-paper theology says about eternity, the practical live, at a practical level, many people often live as if this is all that there is. 
They live with a destination mentality rather than a preparation mentality. This present world, with all of its joys and with all of its sorrow, is not our final address. When we treat it as if it is, then we try to get from this world all that we can. And we try to get from this world all that we can, which can only really be fully experienced and enjoyed in the next life. We try to pack into this present life all the pleasures, all the happiness, all the experience, all the so excitement that we can. We have this bucket list of things that we have to do before we die. Because, man, if we die without doing that, man, we're going to die disappointed. As if there's things in heaven which are less exciting than things on the earth. We do this because what comes with the thought that this life is all that there is, is this inescapable fear that somehow, if we're not careful, life is going to pass us by. We're going to miss out. The fact is this life cannot provide for you what only eternity can. When we ask the here and now to give us what only eternity can, then we end up as driven people, frustrated people, discouraged, angry, bitter people, ultimately hopelessly disappointed. But thankfully the Bible tells us about the coming judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal rewards that are for those who are faithful in their service now. In other words, point number four, everything in this world is meant to be a preparation for the next. Nothing in this life is the destination, it's all preparation. It means your marriage isn't a destination, it's preparation. Your job isn't a destination, it's preparation. Your friendship, family is not destination, it's preparation. All the sights and sounds, the touch and taste experiences of this present world are not the destination. Merely they announce what is to come. They're part of the preparation for the final destination. Now, it's not wrong to enjoy marital love it's not wrong to enjoy a beautiful garden or mud cake chocolate mud cake wonderful paintings inspiring concerts death defying roller coasters a grand final victory it's not wrong to enjoy those things and it's right that we stop and smell the roses along the way as long as we don't treat any of those things as a final destination and it's right that we stop and smell the roses and we want the thorny bits to be removed. It's right for, to long for that. As long as we remember that the curse and sorrow and pain and tears will still be here until, until we reach our final destination. Paul Tripp has some helpful insights on the consequences of eternity amnesia in our lives number one living with unrealistic expectations why are will our expectations be less than realistic 
It is because in our eternity amnesia, we're taking this present world to be simply what it was never intended to be. We want the here and now to behave as if it's the final destination when actually what we are experiencing in the here and now is merely intended by God to prepare us for the destination to come. Secondly, focusing too much on self. Focusing too much on self. Human beings were created to live big picture, long view lives. We were made to live with something bigger in view than this, than present comforts and present pleasure and present happiness. And eternity confronts us with the fact that like Nebuchadnezzar, we're not in charge. We don't live at the center of the universe. And life moves along by the will and the purpose of another, capital A. The instantaneous self-serving me obsession of our culture never results in inner peace and contentment. Eternity confronts us with realities that transcend our momentary wants and feelings and needs. Thirdly, asking too much of people. Asking too much of people. When we fail to live with eternity in view, we unwittingly and consistently ask the people around us to provide for us that which only a paradise and eternity can provide. People around us don't have the ability to give us in the here and now that constant peace and satisfaction which only an experience of eternity can provide. Asking others to provide for us what they cannot provide for us is going to end up in disappointment, frustration, conflict, division. Eternity helps us to relate properly to others. Fourthly, being controlling or fearful. Why do we swing from fear to control and back again? Because in our eternity amnesia, we feel as if somehow, someway, life is passing us by. Those unfulfilled longings, which none of us can escape do not so much announce to us that the world has failed, but rather they announce to us that we are in fact designed for another world, a different world. And true peace in this world is only found when we live with the coming of the other world in view. Number five, eternity amnesia will cause us to question the goodness of God. If we don't understand God's agenda, if we don't understand that eternity awaits, we'll tend, tend to question God's character. Unless we live with the knowledge that God's promises to us reach their ultimate fulfillment in the eternity to come, we think that 
we're enjoying the main meal now when God only intended these things to be like an appetizer. We get a taste of God's good gifts in the here and now. And that should keep us hungering for the full meal which is waiting for us in eternity. But if we think the full meal has to be now and we don't get it, we're going to be disappointed with God. Questioning his goodness. Number six. Living more disappointed than thankful. Eternity amnesia and the unrealistic expectations that flow from that will always lead to disappointment. Many people are disappointed not because God's failed them or because they've suffered overly much but because they have an approach to life which is hoping that this life will deliver things which they can only experience in eternity. And our disappointments reveal more about our eternity amnesia than about the world around us. The world around us is doing exactly what it's designed to do. God's made it subject to vanity. He's programmed that in so that we'll not be satisfied with this, that we'll long for eternity. Number seven, lacking motivation and hope. All of these consequences that I've mentioned weaken our motivation and our hope. The fact that this world is not an endless cycle of dashed hopes and fading dreams, but by God's plan, we're marching towards the moment when all that is broken will be restored. That, can, that gives you reason to get up in the morning and to press on. Yes, life is hard. And you will face in life things that perhaps you never imagined that you would face. But this world is not all that there is. We're not living in the final chapter of the story. For the believer, all that is broken will be fixed. All that is bent will be straightened. Things that are de destroyed will be restored. Eternity really does give us a reason to continue. Even when nothing now, perhaps to some eyes, doesn't seem to be working but eternity changes or challenges, should I say, our feelings of futility. Reminds us that what we're experiencing now is not permanent. Some problems in life may be lifelong, but they're temporary. Indeed, the disappointments of this life are intended by God to increase our longing for the next life. How long, O oh Lord, how long we're waiting, we're looking forward to that day. Number, number eight, living as if life doesn't have consequences. Eternity forces us to face the fact that life does have consequences. We can believe whatever we want to believe, we can do whatever we want to do. But we will face the consequences of our choices. Eternal consequences. A day of reckoning is coming. No human being will escape. And realising that reality infuses today with a seriousness 
that perhaps is hard to find any other way. Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Our eternal God condescends to dwell with us. And knowing who it is that dwells with us is certainly a reviving thing. It's a life-giving thing. To know our God now produces for us an abundant life now and for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures uh, in which you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you for the Old Testament, the progressive revelation into the New Testament. Uh, thank you for the fact that, uh, Lord, you've also spoken unto us by your Son as a perfect representation of the mind of God, the truth about God. And Lord, help us uh, not to uh, despise or to treat lightly the things that you've said. Help us, Lord, to take good heed to that which we hear from your word. Father, I thank you uh, for revealing to us that you are eternal and the implications of that are far-reaching. certainly impacts the way that we should live our daily lives. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to live with eternity in view. For unsaved people, that means that they will go to a place of eternal torment, where the worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched, everlasting fire. Lord, I pray that uh, that truth would uh, not be wasted on us. I pray that you would help us to be gravely concerned about the lost and their plight. But also help us to uh, live each day knowing that one day uh, we will stand before you and we will receive the due reward of our deeds, as it were. We'll be rewarded for our works and uh, the day shall declare it. And uh, we'll live with the consequences of those uh, rewards uh, forever and ever. And uh, little things in this life, when done for the Lord, can have eternal significance. Uh, Lord, that puts a tremendous amount of value in uh, things that we do every day for you. Thank you that nothing done for you is wasted. Uh, all will be revealed and will be rewarded in due time and uh, well that's a wonderful encouragement and motivation for us to be faithful and uh, so we thank you for this thank you for the uh, the revelation thank you for the practical applications and uh, lord we pray you'd help us to uh, to live uh, in the light of your word we pray in jesus name amen